exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, The Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. Well, Phantom fans, for those of you that follow our show, you know that occasionally we pay tribute to those great bowlers from the past. And we usually get someone to help us with the tribute, and that person needs to know that legend very well. Well, this week is no exception, and you have heard his extensive bio before, but it's important to know that this two-time PBA champion, was also instrumental in helping to start the PBA regional program, and he started the PBA lane maintenance program. If that isn't enough, he's also a world-class coach, being one of the very first certified gold coaches. So let's get him out here again. Last week, we did part one. So here's part two, and a great Sam Baca. Hello, Sam, and Welcome back to the show, Pards. Pleasure being here. Okay, are you ready to pay tribute to the great Billy Hardwick again? Oh, always. <laughs> well, I know you guys are very, very close. We talked a little bit about last week uh, some of the shenanigans that would go on on the tour. And I'll tell you what, uh, those three or four years, basically the early 70s that me and you worked together were probably the greatest years of my life. I had so much fun out there with all the guys and uh, Hardwick and, and you and Godman and Glover and Gearhart and Colotus. I could name 20 guys that we used to have a good time with all the time. And anyway, talking about some of the shenanigans that we left off, you were fighting around with, with Glover. You guys went through the window. I, I got a lot of people saying, oh, we need more of them stories. That's great. You know, we never hear about that kind of stuff. So, and now all that stuff was true out there. That camaraderie was just wonderful for all the guys, even though at times they'd get mad at each other, but they were professional bowlers and the great professionals put everything aside and forgot about what happened last week. But we talked about Hardwick being so accurate, uh, which he was. And I know you're the world-class coach and I've seen you turn guys around become champions. So when you teach accuracy, let's say somebody comes to you and they got good balance, they got a nice follow through, they got a great setup. 
They throw a power ball and they're all over the place. All they lack is accuracy. How do you get them people back in line uh, to hit their target more often? Well, um, depends on how you picture the target. Uh, most accurate bowlers, uh, it starts near the foul line. Uh, where the swing is uh, in comparison to the length from your sliding foot or your ankle. If the distance is the same, that means your laydown point is the same. So consequently, lining the swing up to be consistent right at the foul line, that creates your laydown point. So if you're looking at, let's say, the 10 board, and one time you lay it down on 8, Next time you got up, you laid it down on 12, you may hit that 10 board at the 16 or 15 foot mark, but the trajectory of the ball uh, is different. Therefore, uh, your accuracy at the 10 board or at the 15 foot mark doesn't count. You may hit it, but the ball ain't gonna go where you want it. The key in all, let's say, all, all, all uh, times uh, the 40s, the 80s, the 2000s is to hit the break point. So if you're laid down near the foul line or initial contact of the lane isn't consistent, your accuracy isn't consistent. So part of the game that I taught and still would teach is to control where the ball lands. So the start of your trajectory is the same every time if your accuracy is good at the 15-foot mark. It will take you to the break point, which makes a difference of how many times that the consistency of the rotation of the ball entering the pocket. Those guys that control that, um, along with today's equipment, will get their ball on in, a, in a striking position instead of a 10-pin or a 4-pin or any combination of hitting the pocket that you get tapped at. Well, I got to tell you, Pards, um... The first time I did a, a school with you, I'll never forget, you said accuracy comes from your feet. And I'll tell you, I, that didn't even, I didn't understand that at all. And then you went in to explain it. Where you slid is going to be definitely uh, directly responsible for where you're going to hit. And just like you said, if you slid on 10, the ball is going to hit someplace, the same place every time. Unless you slide on 12 the next time, the ball's going to hit someplace else. So you can feed it to your target, but if you're not sliding in the same place, the alignment isn't going to be near the same. So, you know, I saw you turn people around at those schools. They're all over the place. And as soon as you got them to understand that, I'll tell you, the improvement was just instant. So that's one of the greatest tips of all time. And I remember that from the 70s, man. So that was 50 years ago. Anyway, the other thing I wanted to mention to you was another one of your philosophies. I remember guys coming to you and saying, Sam, I want to go on the tour, and I got a sponsor. He's going to give me 25 grand, and that'll get me through maybe 25 or 30 tournaments, depending on how much money I spend out there. And you would say, no, 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 no. You don't want to judge it on that. You want to judge it on how you're bowling. Because if you're in a slump, you used to tell them, it's not going to do you any good to practice on the tour. You better go home for a couple of weeks, straighten out your problems, and then come back out. So you might be out here for two years without money, not just 25 tournaments. So 
that was some great advice. And, and do you still hold true to that too? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very difficult to uh, change your, uh, correct your swing in two or three shots. Uh, if uh, you have to have the latitude, you know, you, you know, you got 20, 25 tournaments. You want to use those 25 tournaments to fit your situation, not just to go out on the tour. You don't learn it out on the tour. I'm, I, I use myself as an example. I went out. Ed Bourdain talked me. Ed Bourdain talked me into going out on the road. I bowled uh, six tournaments in 1963. I, I could see what I needed to do. I didn't fight it. I came home. I worked on my game until the summer tour, and I went out and I bowled uh, three tournaments, and I could see my progress. I cashed twice. Uh, then I went home and I worked on it and I said, okay, I think I'm ready. And I went out in 64 and I made two TV shows. And so I could see that my, the change in my swing and the things that I did. In my case, uh, I analyzed my sponsorship. I, I tried one sponsor and I always felt comfortable within myself that I was going to cash or make enough money to get to the my next stage of my career. The one time that I had a sponsor, I felt obligated to the sponsor. Uh, if I if I had an instinct that I should play inside, but I knew if I stayed outside, I would cash. So I felt obligated to my sponsor to make sure I, I didn't want to gamble on his money by going inside. So I tended to be, during my career as a bowler, depending on myself. However, there's other personalities out there. I won't name any names, but they were more comfortable when they had a sponsor. Uh, I attribute the, my psychology to my championships. I gambled in both, both of my championships uh, that uh, I would win if I played away from what the pattern said. And uh, it paid off. So uh, it depends on the individual, but to uh, set up a program, you have to be flexible enough within within my ability to control what I did, I made a, you know, seven year career out of the pro tour. Uh, and I think everybody should analyze how the sponsorship is going to affect them and how they can plan that sponsorship to give them the best chance to be successful. Yeah. That's awesome advice. Uh, like I say, there's a lot of new listeners on our show and a lot of up and coming kids that, you know, have aspirations of becoming a pro. There's a lot more to it than throwing the ball, you know, as evidenced by uh, our buddy that we're talking about this week, Billy Hardwick, you know, he, he went out on the tour. He, he bowled 17 straight tournaments, never cashed. And he went home and said, what are you going to do now? And he says, I'm going to work on my game. and I'm going to go back out there and beat those guys, which he did, but that's rare, but he had so much determination and so much desire that he probably should have come home after four or five tournaments and did your philosophy, worked on his game. He wouldn't have spent the whole year out there beating his head against the wall. But he had the, the unbelievable desire, which you have to have. So I, I got to mention this. It's part of our show. But uh, fan of fans, we have a special announcement to make. So get your pencils and pens ready. Here's a chance to get a one-of-a-kind souvenir. It's a brand new Glenn Allison 900 shirt, and you can enjoy a discount from Phantom Radio. And this 900 shirt 
has an image of Glenn on it saying, 900, I did it. So call his friend and manager, Jerry Hale, to order at 714-309-7587 and be the first in your area to get this historic souvenir shirt. And once again, call Jerry at 314-309-7587 and be sure to mention that you heard about this on Phantom Radio. And I remember last week, you mentioned Jerry, and you and him had some head-to-head battles. He was a great guy, and he's still a character. I, I talked to him on the phone about once every few weeks, and, and he said to say hello to you, Sam. He always admired you, he told me. Yeah, that's good to know, because uh, we were arch rivals in a lot of pot games in the Bay Area when we were both young coming up. And, uh, yeah, he was he, he liked to play the intimidation game, you know, it was a little honorary. But uh, I knew that was part of the game, and so did he. So did he. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of head games going on out there, you know. And <laughs> I used to watch all these guys, and, and they all had some some little gimmick, you know, extra re-racks or whatever it may be, but it was all cool. All right. Part of the game. Yeah, it is part of the game. It's something you got to learn. It takes experience, but... You know, I was thinking about uh, Billy Hardwick's stories, and uh, we could talk for hours and hours about it, but, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, we went to school together, and we got put into the junior league together, and we were doubles partners, and uh, after the bowling season and summertime, the junior leagues, uh, high school started, and I saw the determination he had in his eyes uh, about bowling, and I says, why don't you come out for the football team? He goes, well, I'm not big enough to play football. I said, come on, we need some players. We're a brand-new school. So he came out for the team, and the coach looked at him and says, what do you want? He was only really 5'3", 99 pounds, and his arms were skinnier than you can believe. And the coach says, well, I'm not going to give you a uniform, and you got to sign a waiver. they out here on your own your own guesswork. And he, Billy says, well, I'll hold the bag you know, while they block. I, I just want to be part of it. And that's the determination he had. And he would, he didn't even have cleats. He slipped and slided on his tennis shoes that he had. And he ended up in the mud more often than not. But he lasted the whole year as being a really, uh, well, four string. But we only had enough guys for two strings. But that's how bad he was. <laughs> he used to laugh at all of us. And we laughed at him. And he'd say, well, someday I'm going to beat you guys at something. And sure enough. He started wiping us up in the bowling alley, and and obviously he went on to Hall of Fame status. But you got it. You got anything you want to say about Billy's game or anything of a story? I, I know you lived with him for a while too. Well, Billy, uh, Billy had some physical problems. He had rheumatoid arthritis, and his his best release was a good release for when he started his career. His release dominated by his uh, rheumatoid arthritis was that he almost had to throw a full roller. It affected his arm swing, his elbows, and so forth. And uh, so he had to be a combination of an accurate bowler and known line play. So uh, he did the most with what his physical capabilities were, just like when he was a kid. It was determination. 
one of the things that I admired about Billy was his accuracy, and it was a combination of what we talked about earlier is he didn't have what we call a power swing nowadays, but he had an accuracy swing, the slight uh, arthritis or whatever uh, that he had in his elbow gave him a slight bend in his elbow, which uh, kind of kept the ball close to his uh, um, relatively the same distance from his ankle. So his lay down was very accurate. And then the full roller kept the swing pretty much on line. Now, during that time, a lot of the, the, uh, the veer was in Dick Weber and Don Johnson. They all veered to the right as they put a little spin on the ball. So he was very accurate, um, and he was very, very good at playing um, outside angles. He used that to his advantage, similar to what Walter Ray did during his run. So I always remember Billy uh, Rosencrantz Lanes, I believe, was uh, we're bowling in L.A. I'm crossing with Billy, and we both have a chance to make the finals. In the last game of the final round, we both got to be shooting like a 2-0. And I'm doing all right. I'm I'm a little above it. Billy leaves seven splits in the last game. Normally that means you're not going to make it. However, he made all seven splits, struck out in the tenth ring, and made the finals. All seven splits, and they weren't easy. You know, four tens, six sevens, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, not the baby, not just the baby split or the five seven or a washout. He made difficult splits. So you know. Um, that was a tribute to his accuracy. My son one time watched one of the shows I was on, and it was Billy Hardwick, Johnny Gunther, uh, Lemangelo, and myself on that show. And, you know, when, when my son watched the show after it was over, I said, what impressed you about, the, about your daddy? He said, well, the, the, what impressed me, Dad, was nobody missed a spare. They made everything. If they left the split, they made it. They made all their spares. Uh-huh. But that was the key back then, you know. Uh, you know, you hung in there because the scores were lower, and you had to be accurate. You know, you had to be good at making stuff like that because you were going to leave uh, more of that stuff. The, the surface uh, of the lanes dictated that you were going to leave splits, so you better be making them. Right. And Billy was one of the best at doing it. Don Johnson was very good. Uh, Earl Anthony. Matter of fact, I think we chartered him at one time. He went through a whole winter tour without uh, missing a spare. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was one of the But he did a lot of things. That was, you know, I think he was one of the first to win the Triple Crown. Uh, what was it? The U.S. Open, the PBA National, the Tournament of Champions. Yeah. You know, he, he did something. What a lot of people don't remember about Billy, he was like, the youngest bowler to ever be a player of the year in in this time probably has been beaten since then. But for years, he was, you know, 22 in 1963 when he was bowler of the year. Right. And that was after and that was after his, you know, uh, 17 tournaments without winning. So that was quite a feat. I always thought. For sure. You know, yeah. uh, you mentioned about accuracy. I remember when you were back there in Louisville and I was back there and one morning we got up, he was going to go practice and we went down to J-Town Lanes and you were going to yeah. work on your game and he was going to work on his and he got chewed up and you got chewed up and started warming up and he threw 17 in a row right out of the gate and I just shook my head and 
and you pointed down at his feet and he was sliding on like nine and he was hitting like two and just it was like nothing and to, in order to slide on nine you had to have a lot of trust uh to, to not throw it in the gutter and uh you you pointed that out to me and i i'll never forget that part of jefferson town lanes in louisville kentucky yeah i always remember I was, you know, it was unusual to get Billy to practice, you know, because he, he it was uh, arthritis. He, and he, he couldn't go two weeks without practice and go down the lanes and you look like he'd been practicing for two weeks. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, here's one of my favorite stories about Billy. We're, we're in Oklahoma City, I think it was. And uh, so... The next, the next day, we're we're gonna, you know, we're we're close to the finals, both of us. Anyway, I I did the obvious thing. I went out and partied, but Billy didn't go out, which he liked the party. Yeah. And so when I got back to the room, I look around. I I figure Billy was back at the room. I don't see him. So I go to go to the restroom, and there's Billy. He's in the tub soaking. And I said, Billy, what the hell are you doing? He goes, man, he says, I'm trying to get ready for tomorrow. He was hurting so bad from his arthritis uh, condition that he would get in the warm tub and he would soak for as long as he could to try to get loose for the next day. The thing that really pissed me off is I missed the finals and he made it the next day. <laughs> yeah, I heard a couple of those stories. Uh, you guys hated a room with him sometime. He'd sit up all night and smoke. And you guys couldn't get any sleep. And then the next morning, you'd get up. He'd be in the tub. You'd have to help him out of the tub and dress him because he was so sore with rheumatoid arthritis. And he'd go down and beat you guys. You said, we ain't room with you no more. You're killing us. Hey, parts, I'm looking at the old clock in the wall. And it says that we're out of time. And I can't believe how quickly the time flies in this show. But we want to tell, tell our, our listeners out there that we really enjoy putting these shows on, and I'm so fortunate to know people like Sam Baca come along, and not only did he teach me a lot, but he's been teaching people for about 40, 50 years, and uh, he's never selfish with his time. So anyway, next week, we're going to have another interesting show, and we want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling and Brad Edelman from the High Roller, and along with Dave Kowalski. He's a president, former president of the Coaches Association of Michigan, and he emphasizes the junior bowlers, and thank God for guys like him. They got 7,000 junior bowlers up there, but Sam, I got a minute. Give us a closing statement if you want, uh, and I want to be staying in touch with you because we're going to be doing these kind of shows from now on. All right. Well, I, I just want to say I'm proud to be part of the generation that started the Pro Tour it started in back in 58 and 59 with the meeting of great champions like Dick Weber and Don Carter and Carmen Salvino and all those guys that got together when their their livelihood was being on the pro, you know, on the beer teams, you know, the, it was a team, team game and putting their uh, careers online to generate uh, a sport on television that has been with us for the last 60 years or so. Well, you've been a credit to the sport. I know how much respect you have from all the players 
and I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. So I will be in touch, Pars. Give my best to your wife, and we'll talk to you again. So for Phantom Radio, this is The Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I'll